Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Uh, this morning we have, for not the first time, we have uh, Jonathan Johnson here to talk about blockchain. And this time is a little bit different. The, the previous time that Jonathan came by, we were doing more of a monetary policy event, a Bitcoin and blockchain sort of um, uh, discussion. And when we did that, we sort of talked about doing something that was a bit broader. And that's what we're doing today. So today what we have is a panel set up to talk about some of the broader uh, benefits of blockchain technologies, not just in the monetary policy sphere, but beyond that, and with a particular focus today on identity theft and fraud and sort of a consumer finance aspect and, and how blockchain technologies can help in that regard. Um, so um, I'm just going to do a quick sort of introduction and then turn it over to Jonathan, and then we will eventually get into our panel. And then eventually, even further down the road, we'll do some, some audience Q&A. So thank you all for coming. And to our online guests, thank you for tuning in. Uh, as you probably know, Jonathan Johnson is the president of Medici Ventures and still on the board of directors at Overstock.com. He's done a lot of work uh, on promoting blockchain and blockchain technologies. We also have Greg Pesci. He's president and CEO of Spera. Amit Sharma, who's the founder and CEO of Inclusive, Anne-Marie Hopkins, who's the CEO of Bitsy.com, and we had a, a last-minute uh, save by Paul. Uh, so uh, my originally, my colleague, uh, another Heritage colleague was here. She could not do this, so at the last minute, we did a switch. Paul saved us. Uh, so this is Paul Matsko. Uh, he is the assistant editor for tech and innovation at libertarianism.org which is an outreach of the Cato Institute, uh, where he runs a regular column on uh, and, and, and hosts a podcast on emerging technology called Building Tomorrow. So I am going to be quiet now and turn it over to Jonathan Johnson. Thank you, Norbert, for that kind introduction. And thanks to all of you for being here to talk about blockchain and what it means in the identity space, and what it means for improving financial inclusion uh, in the markets while we also increase security. I'm going to start by giving a quick primer on what blockchain technology is. Uh, and I would start by saying it is much, much more than Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. To think of those things as perhaps the first killer app on blockchain technology would be the way to do it. Back when the internet first came into kind of cognitive understanding of the population, we used to call it 
the information superhighway. And that's because what the internet did is it made for a nearly free and frictionless flow of information. All of a sudden, information was easy to get and easy to transmit. When the internet transmits information, what it does is it sends a copy of information. So that when I serve up a website to you, send you an email, send you a picture or a video, uh, it is always just a copy. We don't care that there are multiple copies of the same website or that there are multiple copies of the same email that gets sent around because they really have no value different from the information that's on them. Uh, but with assets, and I use the air quotes because assets is broadly defined, if I send you an asset, you don't want a copy. And the internet wasn't able to solve that problem. So whether it was sending money or a vote or uh, securities, anything that when I send it to you, you don't want a copy, but you want the real thing. And you don't want me to be able to spend that real thing twice. Uh, the internet was failing. Blockchain technology solves that problem through having distributed ledgers so that when I send you a Bitcoin, it goes off my ledger and onto yours. And I can't spend it again. You now own it and you can spend it. Same would be true with a vote or anything else that when it is spent once, it is spent for good. Um, so that's kind of the analogy that I use for blockchain. And like email was the first killer app on the internet. Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are the first killer app on blockchain technology, but they are so, so much more. And so the company that I work for, Medici Ventures, is focused on investing in companies that advanced blockchain technology to do three things. One, to democratize capital. Two, to eliminate middlemen, middlemen who add time, cost, friction, potential for fraud and mistake to the system. And three, to rehumanize commerce so that like the internet has taken out a lot of middlemen and people can communicate with each other much more easily, we can using blockchain technology have a digital handshake where I know you are good for what you are transferring to me and you know that I am good for what I am transferring to you. So that's what Medici Ventures is focused on. And each of these uh, companies that are speaking today are using blockchain technology in the financial services space, in the identity space, to hopefully either democratize capital, eliminate middlemen, or uh, rehumanize commerce in a meaningful way. So with that introduction, uh, I will introduce Greg Pesci, who uh, runs Spira. Greg, tell us what you're doing at Spira, how it relates to identity, and how it relates to more financial inclusion. Yeah, great. Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, it's great to be with you today. I'll tell you a little bit about our company and what we're trying to do in this space. I've been in the payments um, industry for the last 20 years, so I'm an exciting fellow. And I, I wanted to see if there was a way that we could um, use blockchain technology to assist us in um, 
in helping small businesses and even independents, like freelancers and independents, as we focus on the small side of, uh, of the spectrum. And what we thought we could do was um, to help them run their businesses and particularly to help them get paid. Um, and so it is – we look at it from a, from a payments uh, standpoint. And our idea was um, that the blockchain could help us with a couple of things that are really important. One is the um, – in the underwriting process, being able to make sure that we knew who our customer was and to be uh, compliant with all the federal rules that, um, that govern that, we wanted to say, could we use blockchain to, one, increase the speed with which we're able to um, make decisions – we want an instant decisioning, so as, as close as possible to instant decisioning, saying you give us the information that we're asking for, we run that against a certain databases, and can we turn that around fairly quickly? Um, and we think the blockchain can help us with that, and we're seeing some, some promise there. Uh, we're also, especially when you focus on the small end of the market like we do, it's about cost. We want to make sure that we can do this as cost efficiently as possible because some of these small uh, players don't, generate a lot of revenue through a year, and so you got to make sure that your underwriting process is, is efficient, and we know that blockchain can do that uh, for us. And clearly on the accuracy side, can we use it to uh, make sure that we get better dis- uh, information for decisioning so as to reduce the amount of fraud that can be associated with uh, payments? And um, and finally, even, even from a, uh, a protection of people's data standpoint, the idea is that could, <clears throat> could we work through use of blockchain so that we didn't have to hold so much of that data and the risks uh, associated with it. And so for us, as a, a fintech startup focusing on the small side of, uh, of businesses, we see blockchain as an opportunity for us to, to enhance, uh, to increase the speed, reduce the cost, and hopefully over time we'll see, make sure that our accuracy is even better for decisioning. And so um, that's really our focus on bringing um, the blockchain to bear and are part of the payments industry. Thanks, Greg. So uh, Amit Sharma is often tells me he started this business as a way to do penance. Uh, he spent a lot of time at Treasury making sure that we had secure systems where terrorists couldn't access the financial systems. I think we've gone so far on security that, frankly, we have, to use the euphemism of the industry, de-risked so many people out of the financial uh, marketplace, uh, that it's hard for many in the world to be banked and participate in the 21st century uh, economy. I mean, why don't you explain your background and what you're doing and how it relates to blockchain? Sure. Uh, thanks for that intro, and it's accurate. Yeah, Finclusive really is penance.com. I should probably get that <laughs> uh, website soon. Um, so but the quick background is, yeah, I was recruited in the Treasury Department very soon after 9-11, and we helped stand up what became the Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. And we had two strategies then. One was a proactive strategy, actively go after bad guys in their networks, whether they be terrorist networks, uh, drug money launderers, kleptocrats, and, and corrupt dictators, whomever, right? How do we use the tools of the government, some existing, some some innovatively in the regulatory, legislative, sanctioned space, uh, traditional and non-traditional tools? And we also had a defensive strategy, which uh, was – really creating controls within the financial regulatory landscape that would not only enhance the breadth of what we call covered institutions, not just plain vanilla commercial banks, but the number of financial intermediaries out there that had to adhere to what rolled up to be the Bank Secrecy Act and the provisions that came and emanated from one of the biggest overhauls of the Bank Secrecy Act, which was the USA Patriot Act, and and in all in an effort to combat illicit finance. 
Um, and then we were also uh, lead drafters on a number of the international standards associated with anti-money laundering and compliance. So the breadth and the depth of compliance controls that affected the system and, and players, financial intermediaries, ballooned pretty pretty largely. And then it was exacerbated by Dodd-Frank and, and, and the uh, issues associated with the credit crisis in 2008. Um, uh, Post-Treasury, I worked in global banking for the next five, six years, and I saw how – antiquated a lot of institutional work was done at the core banking level at a multinational level. At the end of the day, and I don't uh, own this phrase, uh, my, my CTO does, but um, who's uh, a former head of all IT risk cyber supervision at the Fed, and, and says, at the end of the day, banks are data companies that do data management pretty poorly. They are data companies. Let me reinforce that. They are data companies. And, they, and increasingly, as financial intermediation goes to digital means, how do we control that data that is not only sensitive, non-public, but is mandated to be protected? Secondly, all of anti-money laundering compliance comes down to one central question. One question. Do you know your customer? Full stop. You're mandated as an institution to know your customer. And if we have to know our customer, what their source of funds are, what their use of funds are, what their beneficial ownership structure is, et cetera, et cetera, then the context becomes how do I capture what is otherwise non-public sensitive information and it rolls up to effectively an identity question. And that identity question is equal parts applicable to individuals as well it is, as it is to institutions. And as of last year, now with the new beneficial ownership rules that, that impact institutions, now you have to look through institutions and you can't just say an LLC is domiciled in New Jersey and is incorporated in Delaware and you're good. Go open a bank account. Now institutions are mandated to understand who are the beneficial owners, the control persons that control that institution. And if I have my regulator hat on, that's absolutely right. We should know who's in the system and we should be uh, cognizant and transparent and secure about it. Now the challenge has been that – all of a sudden, these rules have turned the front line, that sort of pointed end of the spear, the financial intermediary space, into law enforcement. Neither are they trained to do it, nor are they equipped to do it. So then the question becomes, how do they undertake what should be their responsibility, but do so cost-effectively, as, as Greg uh, rightly pointed out, efficiently, and in a manner that continues to adhere to the very contract that you sign when you go into a financial intermediary, which is they protect your information. I mean, at the end of the day, think about it. A suspicious transaction report or a currency transaction report is a bank mandated by law to take your otherwise sensitive controlled information and turn it over to the government. That's the idea. But the idea of it is to protect the system from abuse. Why blockchain then? Blockchain's underlying characteristics uh, allow us to effectively do a couple things that have been proven out in, in the uh, technology marketplace. One is strengthen and streamline compliance. And so there's a lot of redundancy in anti-money laundering compliance and risk management. We do more compliance. We do not do better risk management. And at the end of the day, it's about risk management. Do I understand the risk? De-risking is a phenomenon that is exacerbated by perceived risk, not actual risk. And so what happens is global remittance flows, low-moderate income individuals, charities doing disaster recovery and humanitarian relief, correspondent banks that have been shut out of the U.S. and European systems – all uh, – many of whom get then cited for a lack of sufficient anti-money laundering compliance regimes or controls. And yet there's so much redundancy in the system that the blockchain allows us to take information that not only can then help protect the underlying personal identifying information or beneficial ownership information, but still do a real-time verification, validation, and authentication of someone's ID 
or someone's beneficial ownership characteristics, source of funds, etc. And so the blockchain can can facilitate that much more real time. A lot of the intermediaries that that Jonathan talked about before um, were put in place for a reason, right? Three day settlement, uh, the depository trust clearing corporation for securities. All to actually enhance transparency, but it is enhanced cost. It's enhanced uh, um, friction in the system. And what the blockchain provides in the second order is to be able to do real-time settlement either for a payment or verification or validation of an ID. And so that's the second uh, aspect of it. And the third aspect is the immutability of the ledger allows us to have a real-time audit trail created, whether it's for effectuating a payment or the verification and validation, client monitoring and transaction tracking, inherently mandated for regulatory purposes. And so those are three applications in which we look at the uh, at blockchain. Why? Because at the end of the day, about three years ago, uh, we were on a working group um, – uh, uh, looking at senior regulators, bankers, looking at the unintended consequences of global AML growth. And with the hundreds of billions of dollars of fines and this phenomenon of de-risking, it had an unintended but amazingly disproportionate impact on whom? Global poor, low moderate income, contractors, asset rich uh, uh, individuals without a credit history, small businesses. 85% of this country and certainly it's larger globally are small and medium enterprises. One percent or less of small and medium enterprises in the emerging markets get access to capital for operating concerns. This inherently is an economic resilience problem, and this inherently ends up being a national security set of has national security set of consequences. So, as Jonathan pointed out, Finclusive really is penance. We created a, a beast intended to secure the system, and what we've un, what the unintended consequences has been is financial exclusion. And if we really want to increase access. Do it transparently and securely. Uh, this, uh, these tools, inclu- in, including and, and in particular the blockchain, enable us to do so. Thank you, Your Honor. So, two years ago, when we ramped up in kind of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency craze, and there was this huge run up, uh, the frequent question I was asked all the time, including by folks at the Thanksgiving dinner table, was. How do I buy Bitcoin? You know, when it gets to the Thanksgiving dinner table, you're in a bubble. The answer was existed, but none of the answers were clean and crisp and easy to use. Bitsy.com is a wallet that has found a better way to access the cryptocurrency market and a better way for us to control our identity without so much arcana that is part of trivial arcana, that is part of our uh, uh, way we identify ourselves today. And when we talk about what Bitsy is doing and how blockchain yeah. relates to it. Um, the point of, of Bitsy and kind of our core values are giving you more freedom and more control, more control over your Bitcoin or your funds. And what we've done is we've, um, we have kind of an exchange wallet where you can buy Bitcoin and Keep it in your wallet, but it's different than like Coinbase or even a regular bank in the fact that you actually have your Bitcoin. It actually goes in your app on your phone, sort of like if it was cash, you were holding it. When you have um, Bitcoin in Coinbase, it's just a ledger um, entry, right? It goes from this person to this person. You don't actually have it. Coinbase has it. When you have to get it, they, they have to do um, the purchase with whoever you're doing it with or with the person. It's not you and the person direct. So we've actually found a way to give you your actual Bitcoin. This is a good idea and important because 
then when you have your own money, you can do whatever you want with it. I can go pay whoever I want. I can do whatever I want. And I don't have to deal with a third party who has to babysit me and help me with it. I don't have to call them. I don't have to have them involved. It's me and the other person. I actually own it. It also helps with the hacking issues that we have, right? It, there's not a ton of money in one spot. There's lots of money on everybody's little spots. So I guess you could hack an individual account and get their $5 worth, hoping maybe you got $500 worth on this one. You have to hack everybody's individual. That's not worthwhile to anyone. No one's going to spend the effort to do that. They, you know, That's not the same as hacking a giant centralized place where you can get a lot of money. So it kind of um, stops that issue. Um, the third thing that it helps with is that there are lots of people who don't have access to money because they don't have ID. Um, there's 2 billion people in the world that don't have ID. Half of the population of Barbados does not have ID. 70% of the population of Argentina has no ID. They cannot open a bank account. They don't have a credit card. It's hard for them to get into the market. Um, if someone like my taxi driver in New York, when I'm talking to him, he's earning money and sending some of his money out of the country to support a, his family who needs money. He has no way to send it other than like a Western Union where it takes tons of time, lots of fees that maybe get 50% of it. He has no way to get the money. They, don't, they can't get a bank account. They don't have ID. This is a way that he can send them directly Bitcoin without having to go through an institution. And he can get you can get money to some of these people who who don't have ID and cannot get help. Um, the problem with having all your money in one place and you holding on to it is obviously you can lose it, right? You've heard about people's phones getting thrown in a lake. Maybe somebody steals your phone. Maybe it just breaks and you can't get in. Um, we have a unique key recovery system so that if you lose it, if your phone breaks or if it falls in the lake or for some reason something happens to it and you can't get your your app and your Bitcoin on here. We have we can generate another key. It's it's a, labor, a laborious process. You have to give lots of ID. You have to go through some serious scrutiny. There's a cost involved, but you can get it back. So it's not lost forever, which has been the other issue with you holding everything, right? We're not used to holding everything and we're going to lose stuff. Um, in order to make it secure, and with the idea that we don't want to hold a lot of your information, we want you to have freedom and control, um, for security, we obviously have to do KYC. So we KYC everybody. We get some of the standard data that you have to have, you know, your name, your email, and some stuff like that, and we, we check you onboarding. We Once we know that you are not a bad customer, then we use an official government ID, like a driver's license or a passport, and we have you put it in your phone, and then we use um, live biometrics. We use live facial scanning, and you, they compare it against your ID, which is already we've already chose, decided that you are a good player. We we um, put your your face scan against your ID, and then from then on, your face is is your is your signature. Your face is how you can get into things. All the other ID we've collected that we don't need to keep, we 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 don't store. We don't have anyone who can hack and, and get your ID from us. We're not selling your ID. Your ID is safe because it's you and your face, and that's all. When you need to open up your and get your funds and do a transaction. Um, there's a great article that was in The Economist this week that was, that was titled, um, we need, we need to own our data as a human right. And we've seen a lot of people using our data to make a lot of money 
And we basically own that data, and we don't have control of where it goes. And it's getting more and more intrusive. People are asking me questions like, what was your last, what did you last buy at Costco? What was your, the amount of your last car loan payment? I don't even know that. I, I, can, I couldn't tell you that, but they can tell me. They can tell me all this. And it's, it's, it's my data. And I think that you can eventually, with blockchain, do that, the same thing we did with Bitcoin with your ID. You could put your ID on your phone. You can own your ID. When somebody needs your ID, you can give it to them. It doesn't need to be stored, and they can be sure that it's you. Um, you can give them only the pieces of ID they need. If you're going to a bar, you can show them you're 21, and they don't need to see that hideous picture or how much you weigh or if you're a donor. They don't need that information. They just need to know you're 21. So they only need the pieces they need, and you can give them the specific pieces they need, and it's your ID, and you own it, and you can use it. And they don't have to be in control of it. They don't get to manipulate it or get it hacked or anything like that. And so that's kind of what um, Bitsy is doing. And we're just trying to find ways to give to use the blockchain to give you more um, freedom and control. Great. When I think about what our goals are at Medici, democratizing capital, eliminating middlemen, and rehumanizing commerce, I think it aligns very closely what Paul is doing putting things back to the individual, individual liberties, individual control of themselves. Paul, what do you want to tell us about identity and blockchain and how it works together? Uh, thank you, Jonathan. Uh, thank you, Norbert. Um, I think what's it's interesting hearing all the fascinating private sector applications of, of blockchain technology that it falls to the uh, token libertarian to describe potential government uses of blockchain to run more efficiently and effectively. Um, to start... Your, the basis of your legal identity is a paper trail, right? The stuff that gives you legal claim to benefits, privileges, and rights, your basic civil liberties, is a series of documents. It's your birth certificate that shows where you were born, that you have a claim to citizenship. It's your, uh, it's your marriage certificate, which gives you a claim to certain rights and tax privileges uh, that come from marriage. Uh, when you settle your account, there's a death certificate, right? So there's a series of documents that is the basis of who you are, without which you are, uh, you are, a, you really are impaired from your ability to participate in the a global financial economy. Uh, this is an issue in other countries. Uh, I, I know what, what Amit's doing. Uh, there are other companies who are involved in trying to bank the unbanked. And a lot of that is how do you, uh, register the, the rights, economic rights and obligations of people who have no documentation. Right. And that's a, that's a real, real problem. But so the basis of our legal identity is a paper trail. Most of that paper, uh, whether it's, you know, real literal paper or it's a digital archive is held at the state and local level. So one of the interesting things about, uh, I think blockchain technology as applied to government structures is that the most interesting stuff is often happening at the state and local level. And we'll actually see that in the, you know, the Brandeis formulation of the states as uh, laboratories of democracy, well, the laboratories of blockchain and cryptocurrency as well. Um, whether it's out of uh, Idaho, there's proposals to put like the legal notice system on the blockchain in Idaho. Uh, Illinois uh, had a task force report last year about ways of applying blockchain technology to tracking stuff like uh, uh, land title. I think the Cook County land title agency is, is going to be using the blockchain uh, to record title. Um, this is actually also true around the rest of the world. There's a lot of interesting land title applications of blockchain tech in uh, Sweden, Brazil, um, and, and really around the globe. 
So, but a lot of this action it is happening on is, is going to be happening in the near future on the state and local level. And the benefits of the blockchain as applied to these documentary archives that are the basis of our of our kind of legal identity and citizenship are that the blockchain is uh, more loss resistant. So obviously if you have a paper archive, it's in the it's in the filing cabinet in uh you know assistant secretary Sue's office and she's been maintaining it for 40 years, there's a fire in the courthouse, all those documents are lost. And that is a real legal headache. It could be a financial headache too when it comes to trying to establish um someone's right to an estate or inheritance and the like. Um well, if it's on the blockchain and it's distributed among all the computers in the county or state government system, well, it's harder to lose that information. It's more immutable. But I think for the purposes of this panel, uh, the blockchain also makes that documentary trail um, uh, much more fraud-proof. Right, it, it, it's harder to fake that that documentation. Now, to use a, a really, I mean, this is out there. This is this is fantasy. This is a, 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 a hypothetical, right? But imagine someone decides to, I don't know, say, uh, run for president. And of course, if you're going to be the president of the United States, the Constitution mandates you have to be a uh, natural born citizen, uh, which means a birth certificate. Right. And now let's say, I don't know, just for sake of argument, some crazy people decide that a man who decides to run for president uh, might not actually be a citizen of the, might have been born in the United States. And so he's, uh, the, feels the pressure, political pressure. And so produces a birth certificate from, I don't know, Hawaii. Okay. Uh, now that piece of paper though doesn't actually persuade his critics. Why doesn't it persuade his critics? Well, because a piece of paper can be faked. You could have paid the doctor to, 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 you know, pay the doctor at the hospital to file a fake birth certificate or paid someone off at the state government. Uh, paper can be faked. It can, it's more easily can be forged. Now imagine if that birth certificate, and obviously this, you know, this only applies going forward really, but imagine if that block, if that birth certificate had been registered on the blockchain. Right. And you produce under under pressure that presidential candidate says, well, look, 40 years ago, entered on a blockchain spread across thousands of computers in the state of Hawaii. There's my birth certificate. It's time stamped. It's authentic. Right. So, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm you know, you, you get what I'm referring to here. Um, and I'm not you know, I, I, I don't think the main benefit of blockchain technology is to prevent future birtherism conspiracy theories. Um, but even in that extreme example, you see the benefits uh, for preventing forgery and, and fraud uh, with that documentary trail. Uh, so switching over as much of the, the, the paper trail that is the basis for legal identity to the blockchain provides these benefits going forward. Um, but there is something I, I, I want to avoid a kind of naive boosterism when it comes to the blockchain. It's not some magical fairy dust that we can sprinkle over government archives and just make them automatically better. Um, first of all, uh, the blockchain really functionally is an evolutionary step. We have – the government has ledger-based systems, social security. Your social security number is an attempt to create a layer of pseudonymity between your name, which is how uh, – I'm a historian. So after the Civil War, you paid pension payments to veterans based on their name. But what happens if one John Smith gets the payment intended for another John Smith? Ah, everyone needs – a unique individual identifying number, and that's the basis of our social security number. So this is an evolutionary step, which I think is is a good thing. It means that it is layering on uh, a beneficial application of this technology um, that doesn't have to be completely disruptive to the way we currently run things, which makes it easier to adopt. I think it makes it 
uh, an easier uh, thing for state legislatures to imagine adopting. But the, the thing I do want to caution us here is that blockchain it promotes efficiency, speed of payment. Uh, it, it, it provides a level of um, uh, accuracy, right, a level of authenticity. The problem, though, is is that when we talk about the state's use of the blockchain, and most of the things I'm talking about here are not using existing blockchains to be proprietary closed access um, in, in, in most forms. Um, but the problem is they're all about making people more legible to the state. Now, here I'm thinking James Scott, seeing like a state, you know, some of his some of his work. The advance in the the scope and authority of the nation state in the modern period, I mean, starting with the printing press in the 15th century on, has been a story about technology enabling the state to make its citizens more legible, more readable, more trackable, more followable. So as we see government entities adopting proprietary blockchains as a way of tracking their citizens, that is, this is both an opportunity for some really cool beneficial applications and also something we need to keep an eye on, something we need to consciously think about the consequences, potential consequences of making the citizenry more legible to the state. Thanks, Paul. I'm going to start with a question, but I want to invite the audience. If any of you have questions, raise your hand. We're not going to wait till the end. We'll put them in early because I've found that at panels like this, if the moderator is the only one asking the question, we can only be assured that the moderator cares what the answer is. Uh, but if someone in the audience asks the question, all of a sudden, not just the moderator, but at least one other person in the audience cares. So I'll just note, are there, tell me your name and ask the question. I'm going to repeat it so we can have the folks on the, that are watching see it. That's great. <laughs> So the question for those that are, we've got a mic now, we'll use it in the future. Thank you. The question was, how is blockchain being used in voting? If I can summarize it to be uh, a little more brief. There is a great company up in Boston called Votes, V-O-A-T-Z. Recently, I'm going to open up the panel to talk about this too, but it's something I know quite a bit about. It recently used its blockchain-based application in West Virginia to allow overseas voters, mostly military personnel and their families, to vote using a smartphone uh, with blockchain technology. So their vote was cryptographically secure. The county clerks in West Virginia were able to confirm and secure their identity. When the votes came into the county clerk, they did not know that it was G.I. Joe voting, but that it was someone who was allowed to vote and they could count the vote. Cryptographically secure way to have a private vote. 
That created a paper ballot that was auditable. That is great technology because it uses both identification and the blockchain in an application for voting. Let me ask this. Part of what we talked about was know your customer. And just like a county clerk needs to know the voter to do this, how does blockchain better help us know our customer? And I'll just, one more preface on that question. Today, when you become known to your bank, you provide them all kinds of information that I call trivial arcana. They know your mother's maiden name. They know the, the school where you went to second grade. They may know the name of your first pet. All this stuff that really doesn't say that you are you, but we use as substitutes for who you are. And frankly, once someone's cracked into that honeypot database, they can know your mother's maiden name, your second grade elementary school, and the name of your first pet. How does blockchain help us better know our customer? Anyone? Emory, you look like you're poised for Because I had this experience. I had a kid who was in Cape Verde and needed to, to open his credit card, and he couldn't call because he wasn't having a long enough service to get through all of the stuff they needed to make his credit card work. And he should have done it before, but that's beside the point. Spoken he, like a mother. Yes. He should have done it before. So so he calls me. He's texting me and saying, I need you to do this credit card. And so I'm calling him. I'm like, hi, I'm his mom. Can you make his credit card work? And they're like, no. He has to call us. He has to do it. We have to have him on the phone. And I'm like, okay, whatever. So I get my daughter's boyfriend, and I'm like, sit down. You're Thomas. And he sits down, and he there, and we put him on speakerphone, and he, they're asking him all the questions. And I'm writing him down, and he's answering him. You know, what's your what's your first car? I'm like writing it down, and he answered me. They go, okay, thank you, Thomas. We've activated your car. I mean, that's not identity. That's that's a bunch of questions that that you know. And and the funny thing is, they don't believe your first question. They have to ask you like ten more. So how is asking you ten more questions that everybody else knows useful? It, there's it's just not it's not effective. And the thing about the blockchain is that it is it's it's unchangeable and it's. It's on the blockchain, and so when it's on there, you know it's it's you know it's true. You know it's verified, and so if you give them, you know, the one thing they need, they can prove it's you. It's been proven. It's it's it it, they, it, it can't be changed without people knowing. And so if you have identity on a blockchain, then it's sure identity. It's identity that you can give them. You know, one thing that proves it's you. You don't have to give them fifty things. And so it's I think it's a more secure way of identifying who people are. And it's actual real identity. It's not just anyone answering questions on a phone, which is kind of a ridiculous thing to think that that's for sure that person. Greg? Yeah. Um, I have a little emotion about this. Recently, when we were talking about getting ready for this, and Norbert, we had a call, and I was sitting outside of my financial institution, which I love, and I won't say their name because I love them. <clears throat> although, they've, the although they've tested my love a lot in the last couple of weeks. <clears throat> and they um, they told me that, I had sent a, a wire for our business and that it appeared to be fraudulent. Well, first, they didn't tell me that it appeared to be fraudulent. They just shut down all ability to do anything. I couldn't get online. I couldn't I couldn't do anything. So I went in to go and see them, and I said, what's the story? And they said, oh, there's a problem with how you're authenticating for the wire. I said, okay, well, let, let's fix that. And so we did, and then three visits back to the branch, there was still a problem. And I have an RSA key fob as well because – 
I don't know why, but because they tell me I'm supposed to. And so I did, I did use that and finally went back for the fourth time, right after our phone calls, I was sitting in the parking lot and said, what, what's going on here? Why are you, I mean, you know, I am who I am. Here's my, here's my uh, driver's license. Here's my account number. Here's my pin on that account. Did you know that you all have a verbal password as well? Because I didn't. And they asked me what my verbal password was, and I didn't know. So we went around and around. And eventually I came back, and we, we took care of all of that. There was a young woman who works there that used to date my son who came over and hugged me. So apparently it was a good split. And, 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 and <laughs> she knows me, didn't care. They didn't care at all. And the issue for me, the troubling part about it, eventually we got past it, and it's all working now. That's why I won't say their name because I do love them. But the, the fact is this. It's, um, they have all that information, and so does any other bank that you use. And so does almost everybody else that you do any kind of financial transaction with. So your information is all over the world. And we have enough examples in, in recent history of very large companies in our, in our country who have been compromised. And your information is sitting out there. So that's a problem. And that's why I really like what uh, Amory was saying about this idea that we should be owning our own identities. We should be in control of our own identity. It's so difficult to, stand, to sit in a room in front of people at a bank and say, it's me. Right, And then they, they asked me where I lived in Cincinnati, which I, I did for a while. I'm thinking, you have no idea where I lived in Cincinnati. I lived there, and they're telling me I gave them the wrong answer. And so I think what we, what we need to be able to do here is, is one, have some additional uh, control over our own information. And two, if we could have it in systems where it's not spread out all over the world with all these different, these different companies um, to reduce that risk, I think would be really, really important for us. And I understand that banks need to do it because of guys like Amit. They have to do this. But at, at some level, though, this, the system seems to be uh, sort of ha have spun out of control. And, um, and I think that there's no question that, that the blockchain holds out the hope. As Paul was saying, it's not, it's not you know, fairy dust, but it holds out the hope that we might be able to, to change the system in a meaningful way. Oh, I, knew you, I know you have something to say. I've got I've, yeah, a couple things. Um, well, these stories are not unusual first off right um and and uh all i can say greg you're welcome <laughs> and Anne marie uh, thank you for giving a primer on one of the many ways you can launder money <laughs> yeah so just take some notes because there's a lot of things that you can take away from this panel and that's one of them uh, how to con yeah yeah exactly maybe unintended um a, a couple of things because it applies to the voting use case as well uh blockchain is not a panacea as folks have said here but we do have some proven use cases in the specific context as we think about Know Your Customer and Jonathan, your question, as related specifically to poor data management and security and inability to take sensitive personal information and even validate and verify it in antiquated data management and security systems. That's what we're talking about, right? Because it's not unfounded for institutions to say, I need these 15 questions because if I get through them and you answer them all, I'm just that much more confident that it's you. Right, so let's put self, what we call self-sovereign identity aside for a second, right? The idea of, of owning your identity. And let's think about all of the information going to then being able to verify, validate, and authenticate who you are. And I say this in two contexts, not only in the context of solving the problem here, which is, okay, Anne-Marie, you are who you say you are, or I, uh, by proxy, you should be able to help your son, or in the context of, I'm now frozen out of my account, what do I do, even though you, the institution that I purportedly love, um, you know, are, are, is making it that much harder for me. 
underlying personal identifying information, once verified and validated on onboarding, can be hashed in the blockchain. Thereby, any institution can go and rely on this information that has been immutable, encrypted, and distributed in a way that does not uncover the underlying PII information, but gives me the validate and authenticate in real time. That's one. That's huge. Secondly, these two pieces, uh, these two uh, case uh, examples, right, also showcase the earlier point that I was trying to make, which is a compliance department holds that information, not the credit, not the lending, not the mortgage, not the et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, product and service side. Banks are horrible, excuse me for any banker that's listening, at translating the very information from one side of the entity to all of the other sides of that entity. And there are a number of security protocols and, and, and regulatory and other uh, uh, related issues that implicate that. But again, we're talking about the authentication, the verification, validation. This is equally true for both an individual as well as entities because now we get into beneficial owners. You get into control persons of that entity. So, so you have that. And the second is the ability then to transact in your own economics in ways that are secure to you. Those are the two elements that the immutability, the encryption, the distributed nature of the blockchain allow for that to be much more efficient, less friction, and uh, a more attuned to the actual risk. Again, the actual risk, not the perceived risk. Greg, I'm the banker. You know, you look like a lot of other folks that have claimed the exact same things. And therefore, I, and I need to go two levels above me in management to get a to get an exception to this rule, and no, I can't do this over the phone. you got to go through the system and use your key fob, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those are the rules and mandates within the institution, not unfounded, mandated regulatorily to provide a safe and secure environment inside a financial intermediary. However, if that then takes away from, because of the inefficiency and friction, that those three elements of blockchain can help solve. Now you no longer have this, these two challenges. You have a secure domain. You don't have to divulge the PII information. The bank doesn't have to go back and, and redo all of those uh, both nonsensical and somewhat sensical uh, information gathering points that are redundant and are man hours and cost costly, which then ultimately say, you know what, Greg, I'm not going to do business with you. You're just too much of a headache. And not Greg, but low-moderate income that has an average balance of 200 bucks, or a contractor that's getting paid in cash every month because they don't have a credit history, no bank will take them, et cetera, et cetera. These are the elements that implicate the authentication, verification, validation of identity that ultimately allow for financial intermediary, intermediation and, and the uh, democratization of finance. So those, those are the problems that we're solving with the Finclusive Club. If I could cliff note what I love about what Ahmed said is once you prove who you are once, we can then have on blockchain the ability to prove who we are every time without all of that same arcana. That is revolutionary. Please, tell us your name. And we got a mic this time. Um, hi, my name is Kelly Emmerich. Um, I'm with the Secure ID Coalition. And um, this is a fascinating conversation. And so, um, you know, looking at all of the data that's out there about all of us, whether it's a result of an Equifax breach or a Facebook, whatever, or, you know, we put it out there ourselves in many cases. Um, and then, how, again, us controlling our own data and controlling our own information. I want to get to the question of 
What is the policy here and who is offering us this ability to control our data? How do we onboard that data in a way to get it into the blockchain? Is that an individual company? Is that a startup? Is that the government? Is our social security number should it be hashed on the blockchain and should that be something the Social Security Administration should be doing? I mean, what are the policy questions that need to be answered so that I, as an individual, can get to a place where I can control my data and only send the bits of information that need to be sent to what it, for whatever transaction. And back to the question about the banks, I mean, the banks could potentially help us with this process. You said they have all of our data. I mean, we all know they have the data. So could they, and what could there be an incentive for them to do that, I think is the larger policy question. Paul, you want to? Yeah, I mean, the short you want to jump is, on policy first? Yeah, that is yes, all of the above. I mean, it, I, I think what we're going to see going forward, it, there is there is no singular level of blockchain, right? There, you're going to have blockchains being adopted both by the private sector, by you know financial firms. You're already seeing you know uh, major banks uh, using block, you know, experimenting with blockchain for international payment systems to make. It's because international payments are particularly onerous right now in terms of time and cost. Um, so banks are going to be using them, you know, uh, between, between international banks. Uh, when it comes to the government, I mean, yes, yeah, I mean, there's a very logical use case for hashing uh, social security numbers. Because um, right now, the level of, yeah, your social security number provides you a, a, a slight level of pseudonymity, right? But that information can easily be found and bought online by, you know, that information is e- easily hacked. Um, so if, if you can make that, you can amp up the level of pseudonymity, make it harder for someone to, to steal someone's social security information. Um, but also there's a use case here where, okay, it should cut down social security fraud where you come, how do we know that you are Identify, how can we identify you as the actual holder of this of this social security number? I, that is a use case that the blockchain should be able to help with cutting down on on fraud and abuse in social security. Same thing has been proposed for uh, state and local level. Uh, uh, it's been proposed for uh, everything from welfare payments to food stamps. In these situations, is particularly apt because there's an incentive for people to voluntarily, you know. Put themselves. I mean, but if you're if if you need to do this in order to receive money, well, there's an incentive for you to to go to to enter your information onto the onto the chain every time you want to get your payout, every time you want to get your food stamps for the month. Um, it's a little more complicated when it comes to stuff like, uh, let's say, a gun registry. So you could put a you could put your gun registry who who has a license to a firearm on the blockchain. There, the question is, what's the incentive? I mean, if I've if I have an illegal firearm. I obviously have no incentive to enter that on the blockchain. So it doesn't apply equally to, to all systems. Um, but I think you're going to see these competing blockchain systems on all levels of government, uh, multiple uses in the private sector. Um, I, I think that's the world we're looking at is this kind of confusing welter of different blockchain systems. Yeah, just uh, 15 seconds on on this, especially as it relates to the financial side. Um, There's two points I wanted to make. One, the application is pretty far-reaching. So my – our stance is – and we do a lot of work uh, um, trying to talk to uh, folks on the Hill, Senate Banking, House Financial Services, Homeland Security, Treasury, FinCEN, OFAC, OCC, uh, Fed, et cetera – on some practical applications that streamline compliance from a know your customer, customer validation perspective. But importantly, and, and folks have touched on this, 
identity and identifiers are also increasing. And so the – and this is where issue uh, – um, uh, discussion and debate and <clears throat> protocols around self-sovereign ID are really important because at the end of the day, what happens is not only do, do, do I get hashed in the blockchain once I get onboarded, right? The equivalent, for example, clear, right? The private sector TSA, right? You can buy all the water you want on the other side, right? Uh, but you just can't walk through. It's, it's, that's it's a bit hysterical if you think about it. Similarly on finance and banking, the difference though is that Things do change. My address does change. My source of funds do change. As those new identifiers get equally then hashed in the blockchain, I've got both an audit trail and a growing set of identifiers that then need not also be released to the public community. Secondly, it's enhancing. Half the time, like just being able to transact back and forth are all credit-enhancing events, and we don't capture those for the purpose of then – Adding that critical business intelligence, again, know your customer, to the credit and lending departments of banks to say, hey, you have a history. It just is now coded in the system. I can understand your history even if you are transacting in quasi-informal means, moving Bitcoin between folks because you it shows your credit worthiness, your vulnerabilities, your source and uses of funds. These are all exactly the spirit anyway of the AML, the anti-money laundering framework that we cared about in the post-9-11 BSA and USA Patriot Act context. We want this. We want to be able to give people uh, more access to financial remediation with the right information. Blockchain can enable that in a lot of ways. Then you can see it in the application in health, education, etc. So I, I'm long on the applications. As long as we, you know, take methodical and, you know, disciplined steps in those practical applications and the security elements. And the final pieces are, you know, banks too, you know, so many looked at never divulging or getting rid of the information because it was so important and you needed to secure it. And yet concentration risk was never really talked about until Target got hacked and JP Morgan got hacked and Equifax got hacked. And, you know, I'm not on the Facebook, but, you know, the North Koreans know where I live. Because the OPM got hacked, right? I mean, it's so it's um, as long as we take a disciplined approach. I, I think the practical applications are far-reaching. My view is individuals ought to decide which blockchain they want their identity stored on. That could be a government-sponsored blockchain. It could be a private-sponsored blockchain. That should be up to me where I'm storing my information in a cryptographically secure hashed way. I am a big fan of an emerging blockchain, ID blockchain called Sovereign. It lets you, it's, it is a private foundation, not owned by anyone. I think it is a great source for individuals to say, I don't want the government to have all of my information. This is where I want to do it. But I think it's a great question. Yet to be unanswered and probably not answered with one answer at the end of the day. Please. David Burton, the Heritage Foundation. David, good to see you again. It's good to see you. Uh, this question is for Anne-Marie Hopkins and whomever else wants to answer it. You talked about uh, people who don't have ID in Barbados or Argentina and, of course, uh, low-income people in the United States have similar problems. 
running the uh, AML Know Your Customer gauntlet. What's totally unclear to me is, assuming you or other folks are AML compliant, why you have any advantage over financial institutions dealing with people who don't have ID or otherwise have difficulty running the KYC gauntlet? Well, with Bitsy, I don't have an advantage, but my customers who have Bitcoin can send it. So what I'm doing is... But see, I don't, I, because they have their Bitcoin in a bank, they have to do the KYC on both sides. And when you're making a transaction with a company, they have to KYC me who is doing it. And then they have to KYC who I'm sending it to. But if, if I have, it's like if I had cash, I can hand my cash to anyone I want. And I don't have, no one has to KYC that guy. I, 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 if, if something goes wrong, I'm responsible. So I guess I could KYC them, but I don't have to. And so if they don't have ID and everything, they're, they're good actors in, in commerce, but they don't have ID and I want to do business with them because they're my uncle who is in, you know, who's struggling to find food and I want to give them some money and they don't have any ID. I can do that. I can take that risk and I probably would take that risk because I know no one's going to come after them because I feel like they're a good person. Now, if they're bad people, then I'm fully responsible as I should be because I'm the actual one doing the transaction, not my bank or anyone else. It should be me because I'm the one who's doing the deal. So it makes a lot of sense. But with Bitcoin, when we give it to you, we KYC the person who is buying Bitcoin from us. The person who is transacting with us is KYC through us. But then the person that they want to do business with further down the road with the Bitcoin that's in their own, the, their, their money in their own possession, that's their business. If they want to get arrested or do something bad, that's their risk. If they're trying to do something with it that they can't do otherwise that is helpful and that is useful, I hope they can. I want to give them freedom and I want to give them control. And I think as we all make our money and we all have our, our, our whatever we want to do with it, we should be able to choose. I don't understand why all these other people are involved because a lot of the time people are making really good choices and they're trying to do really good things and people are getting in the way. I was just trying to move to, this isn't quite that good of an example because it's not heart-wrenching, but we were trying to move to New York. I'm trying to buy a Costco mattress and I'm trying to send it to New York, but I don't have the actual, my name is not actually on the the apartment until Friday, but I need to buy it now because it's going to take a couple of days to get there and, it's, and I'm waiting for a mattress, right? So I call Costco and I'm trying to get this mattress and they ping because they have to KYC everything, they ping my apartment and in the system, it's not in the system yet because it won't be in the system till Friday. So I can't get my mattress there because they can't send it to there because it's they can't verify that. You know, and if, if I was just doing a transaction by myself like that, I can just do it. I don't have to have them approving where I live and, and checking all this stuff and doing all this stuff. And I'm doing something just fine, but I just can't do it. And I mean, that's the point is you've got to be able to have your money and do what you want with it and have control and and if you're doing something shady, then you can the law can come after you. But it's, everyone else, all the institutions shouldn't also be involved in that, right? And they are, and so they have to. But it, it would be nice if you were in more control and had more freedom. So, Emery, first thing I would say is I'm very disappointed you're not buying your mattress from Overstock. <laughs> uh, second thing I would say to David's question, I the could thing get a that deal. I like about Bitsy is. 
they will KYC me as I go into the system and open a Bitsy account. They have to. Yeah. That's the law. That's that. what that's what Amit put in place. That's the law. But what I like about them is once they have KYC'd me and they have figured out who I am and I can prove who I am with my biometrics, that all of that data that they gathered to KYC me is now destroyed. That, I think, is a real advantage to me because now Bitsy is not a honeypot to be hacked by bad people. What's the famous saying? Why do people rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Why do people hack data companies, which is what you call the bank, Ahmed? Because that's where the data is. And Bitsy is not where the data is. It was there once. And we all use their, know that they're using all of that data not just for identity now, which for free. Other questions? Please, tell us your name. Hi, my name is Richard Shin. I'm currently an intern here at Heritage. And I was just wondering, so this is just a general question for the entire panel, but uh, you've talked a lot about how Bitcoin, or sorry, blockchain is a really secure technology, but as a distributed database system, doesn't it create a lot more access points for hacking? Why is a distributed ledger better than a database in one place? Any thoughts on that? I'll, I'll just take a quick uh, 15 seconds. By the way, when he says 15 seconds, yeah. I take the over every time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true. Um, that's a good point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I can't it's just that. It's fair. It's very fair. Um, that, so, A, not all blockchains are created equally, uh, number one, uh, 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 which I think is a good thing, right? The market needs to bear out on on just like, you know, internet, deep web, dark web. Like there's a number of ways that uh, some are more secure, some are less secure, secure. Secondly, you can have permissioned or non-permissioned blockchains. Um, there are the manner in which and the networks or the blockchain used uh, certainly uh, gravely impacts um, the, the manner that you can provide that security or sending asset store of value or, or other information of value. Um, so uh, but the important thing here, it really goes back to the concentration risk issue. Imagine taking your personal identifying information, fragmenting it, encrypting it, and then spreading it over 10,000 computers. It's much more uh, secure. And I will never go on on uh, record to say something is unhackable. Everything's hackable. The smart, you know, the the smarts will come, right? But it's just a lot harder to take uh, ten thousand bits that are scrambled, encrypted, and spread over distributed systems than there is in concentration risk of of putting all data unencrypted uh, or or not fragmented into a single system, right? And so I I am long on distributed systems in that way. Also, I, I believe that inherently is a human construct because um, at the end of the day, some of the more sustainable systems we have seen require diversity, whether it's biodiverse systems and ecosystems, environmental ecosystems, and I, I think that's the same in data. And so as we think about the use, classification, ledgering, and then protection of and dissemination of data, the more we can look at distributed systems to inherently create control environments because of what I just described, the the, uh, the inherent issue of concentration risk, I think that we are that much more secure. that answer, Richard, your question? Okay. Maybe time for one more. Anything else? Please, in the very back. 
Hi, my name is Gabby Beaumont-Smith. I'm a policy analyst here at the Heritage Foundation. Um, we've talked a lot today about how this technology is going to help low-income people who don't have access to identity or forms of identification. Um, I wanted to know how are there outreach programs to educate those individuals about this technology? How are we reaching those people? Great question. I'm going to take a quick stab at that, and then we'll turn on the panel who wants to address it. We've invested in several companies that are outreaching to the unbanked and the low uh, income. I want you to think about what cryptocurrency is and how it can replace a bank. For most of us, we use a bank for two reasons. We use it as a place to store our money so that when we're paid, we're not taking our money back, putting it in a shoebox in our sock drawer and make hoping it doesn't get stolen. And two, we use it for access to digital cash, which for the bank is a credit card or a debit card. So that when Anne Marie goes shopping on Saturday to Costco, she doesn't have to take a gangster wad of cash to go to the checkout line. Right? So it's storing money and digital cash. Cryptocurrency built on blockchain technology, does both those things. It puts a wallet, place to store your cash on a cell phone or a cold storage drive, and then lets you spend it using a QR code as if you had a credit card. Pretty neat stuff. That is being adopted more broadly globally than it is here in the United States. Because in the United States, only 8% of the population is unbanked. South America, it's 70%. In Africa, it's 90%. That's where the outreach has to happen first. Here in the U.S., I think it will happen over time. So that would be my quick answer. I don't know if anyone wants to add to that. Uh, the way we're doing it is working with channel partners, social service organizations, uh, uh, development financial institutions, on-the-ground charities, humanitarian organizations, and it's just going to take time. I think we should think about um, – we think very hard about explaining access and security issues without getting overly wonky, and I say that deliberately because just in this room slash across the, the, the street here on the Hill, uh, regulators, even the folks that purport to be in the crypto universe, there's a lot of folks that still conflate crypto and blockchain, and so – uh, I was really pleased, that Jonathan, that you started this with a very base uh, uh, definition and, uh, and explanation of blockchain because it, a lot of folks assume it. So we have to be equally careful when we think about the financially underserved, unbanked, underbanked, or less uh, literate, less sophisticated financial participants to get overly technical about those elements – um, so as to, A, not scare, but quite frankly, to get back to the underlying issues. And the final piece I'd just say is it's not just access. Um, in so many countries like Argentina and elsewhere, the ability to therefore hold stores of value in digital means allows them to take away a significant risk of losing the entire value of their holdings because they're in a, a sovereign fiat environment that that that's very much uh, the case where you have 1,000 plus percent inflation, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a huge development challenge, and that's where I think digital assets hold a lot of, uh, a lot of promise. I, uh, go ahead. I was just going to say I would agree. I just think that 
I think for one thing, it takes a while for people to get used to it, right? People are not really, it, change is not, is slow, especially in the United States where everybody thinks everything through and everything moves really slow. But I also think people are a little bit intimidated by it. And so to get it actually used, which was great because I love, I also love the fact that with like Bitcoin, it settles right then. There's not the three days. I mean, you cut out so much money, so many, so much time, so much money, so much stuff. It makes it so much more simple. But I think that it's a little bit, I think people get a little nervous about it. And one of the things we did when we started our Bitsy Exchange wallet is we tried to make it really simple. If you look at it, it's you, you sign up. It's very clear. It's like a Venmo almost. There's a big buy. You just push it. There's not big numbers and, you know, how many um, things are pending. It's, it's just very simple. And I think a lot of people don't really realize how complicated their banking system is. If they looked at it like people think they're looking at Bitcoin, they would be a little bit, ah. But our banking system is the same. It's just as complicated. You just see the simple buy, send, a purchase, you know, you just see those buttons. And we tried to make it really simple. I think the more simple and the more um, accessible it is, I think the more people will feel more comfortable with it. Greg, I want you to talk just briefly about the gig economy and how you think that helps roll this out. Sure. So so we um, we, we focus on, on that, on the economy, on, on independence in, in particular. And so um, we were thinking of ways that, that could help them, the blockchain as far as an underwriting concern, but also in the payment process. So to use a, a real a real life example, <clears throat> which we did with Bitsy, I don't even know if you know we did this, but I did call your team and I love your product. And and so what we did was um, we we built software that allows people to manage their their projects. So you're an independent contractor and you're going to create a, I don't know a website. Right? We're going to hire you to create a website for us because I'm a boomer and I can't do that. And so uh, we say okay. Um, Let's 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 we put a little deal together, and then you use our software to manage your projects, the tasks, and then it creates an invoice, and then you can get paid. We have a full payment network. You can get your traditional merchant account, which you can get under three minutes, as long as you haven't done anything that's with ISIS. You're going to get it within three minutes, and uh, and then also we want to have the opportunity for you to get um, to use crypto if you want to. So we did, and um, and we we tested this concept of how difficult it would be, just as you were saying, and how challenging. And, and, and people do need to be coached a little bit, but it's, it's not that bad. And as Anne-Marie was just saying, if you compare it with your experience on the bank, it's, it's not that different. So what happened was we hired this, this young woman. Uh, we didn't hire her. We, we retained her. And she said um, she would put, put that together for us. It was a small deal because she would never done it before. She wanted to know what it would take. So we said 300 bucks. All we're asking for is a small thing, $300 U.S. And so she did the work, and, then when it was, and she used our software – and then when it was time to actually pay her, she said, I want to get paid in crypto, which she had never done before. And so we said, okay. So we went and created a process where she could, and we taught her how to do it, and she did it on her first try, how, and never having done anything with crypto before, to put in a QR code into her invoice, which she then sent to us. We got a Bitsy. Um, she signed up for a Bitsy account. This is where I want to disclose that we did this. And we signed up for a Bitsy, for a Bitsy account as well. Uh, we purchased some, some Bitcoin. And then she was able to put that in her invoice, into the QR code. She sent that invoice to us. I opened up my Bitsy wallet. I opened up the camera in my wallet. I hit the QR code with my camera. And in less than three seconds, that Bitcoin was in her Bitsy account. And so, and, and then think of it this way. From her perspective, if she were to take, and I don't want to use anybody's name. I know who's worth, but if she would take a well-known uh, um, processor in the, today, she'd probably pay 2.9% plus 30 cents on that transaction. 
because she's the merchant, right, selling services to us. And if I wired her, I'd be paying $40, $30 or $40, and she might get hit with 15 on her side, right? And so we bought the, 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 the crypto, which is more expensive than it should be. That's not Bitsy's fault, but we're working on that. But we bought the crypto f- first, and then when it was time to send to her, we sent her $300, and it cost us $0.09. Cents. She received that crypto, and it cost her nothing. Now, she, she wants to get it out to fiat, to U.S. currencies, which she's looking for in U.S. dollars. Then she has to figure out how she wants to do that, and we trained, we trained her on that as well. We put little cheat sheets together on this and how to do it, and it's 0.3% for her to do that. So net-net for her in that transaction, she saved a, a lot. She saved a lot of money. And, and we think there are – for a lot of people who are independents, who are, even if they're in this country and they're not – and they are banked, they're not even fully underbanked. They may have thin files. It's very difficult when you go to the bureau to, to, to get good information on these people. We think there's more and more opportunity for them. And there are 56 million people in this country who did some sort of freelancing last year, part-time or, or full-time. You can see that that's a lot of money and that's a lot of people. And we want to talk about freedom, whether it's part-time or full-time. This is an opportunity for you to decide how you're going to run your business, whether it's a side business, whatever it might be. And we believe that um, the blockchain and and crypto as, as, a, as a way of, of helping with the payment side, but the blockchain on the underwriting in total provides an opportunity to really support this, these little people working in the gig economy. We actually call it the freedom economy because we think it's a chance for you to have more freedom in your life about how you want to work. And what I just described is a real example. Uh, and we did this, we, we did, tested this with six people, all using Bitsy, which is a great product. Um, and I don't own any shares in their business. And, uh, it, it, and it worked very well. But there is an education that has to occur. We've just been pleased by these first six tests that, that it's not that bad. I would like to thank each of our panelists, Greg, Ahmed, Anne-Marie, and Paul. I'd also like to thank the Heritage Foundation for hosting this. This is a group that is thinking about the future. This is a group that is thinking about freedom. Thank you for bringing us here. And I'd like to thank Norbert for being the one that's coordinated and got us all together. And thanks to each of you for coming and listening to how blockchain can help identity and the freedom in the future. Thanks. Things everywhere so that I don't forget. Have a, have a smart job. Yeah,